Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm delighted to have back on Facing the Canon, world-renowned theologian, Professor N.T. Wright. Tom Wright, welcome back to Facing the Canon. Thank you, good to be with you. Always a joy to have you with us, Tom. Uh, uh, you always stimulate me, <laughs> you warm my heart. Uh, but I want to focus in this conversation um, on what I would say, I've, re- I've actually read a lot of biographies <laughs> mm. over the years. In fact, I started to consume them as mm. soon as I became a, a follower of Jesus. Um, but I would say that this is my favourite oh, biography um, that you wrote on Paul. And I love us to talk about Paul um, in this programme. Sure. Okay, so before Paul encountered Jesus, who was he? He would have been known as Saul, and he came from Tarsus, which is in the southeast of what we now call Turkey. And he grew up as a very strict, uh, I want to use the word Judean. We say Jew, but the word Jew has got all sorts of connotations. And Judean means one of the people who'd come back from the Babylonian exile, were based in Jerusalem or Galilee, but then had also spread around much of the Mediterranean world. So he grew up as a strict Judean in the sect that was called the Pharisees. And we know from what he says in Galatians chapter one, that he was one of the strictest. He, He knew the ancient ancestral traditions, which means he knew the scriptures. He knew the traditions of interpreting the scriptures. He knew that the world was full of evil and a lot of that evil and wickedness was stuff that the Gentiles did, the goyim, the nations, because they worshiped idols and so they were corrupt and they were degrading and you shouldn't get too close to them. And so it was important for uh, the people who called themselves sometimes the people of Israel, though they were the the, the post-exilic version of that as it were, to keep themselves pure because they had the great hope. And the great hope is rooted in what we call the Old Testament, what for them would be the scriptures, that uh, Israel's God, who is the world's creator, is one day going to fulfill his ancient promises. He will send the Messiah, the son of David, and through him, God's new world is going to be born. And the important thing is for us Judeans to stay faithful so that that will happen. We mustn't dilute and mustn't go soft on it. And you can just imagine the zealous young Saul and zeal in his world was not just something that happened in your heart, something you went and did. And um, the models of zeal which he seems to have had were people like Phineas and Elijah in the Old Testament who actually did what we call violence, sacred violence to, to stop the evil from infecting the people of Israel, even though it was then costly as Elijah found out. That's a whole other story though. It's one that Paul knew, that the young Saul of Tarsus knew well, because he refers to it later. So that, that's where he's coming from. And we imagine him then with his head full of scripture and the traditions and his heart full of zeal, he's gonna be one who will save Israel for the great hope that God has for them in the future. But we do know he was on a mission, uh, on his way, um, can we say, to persecute Christians? Sure, sure. And he says that himself. Um, He says it two or three times. He's quite clear this is what he was doing, believing that this was the way to keep the Judeans pure because these followers of Jesus were saying that Jesus was superseding the temple, that he might even make God's holy law somehow less relevant. And you can tell because these Jesus followers were fraternizing with non-Jews, with with Gentiles who were 
technically unclean. They were hamartoloi, they were sinners, because they were outside Torah, so they are by definition sinners. So they are corrupting the pure people of Israel, and this must be stopped. So off he goes to stop it. And on the way there, he has um, what has become known as a Damascus, Damascus Road, road experience. experience. He's on the road to Damascus. We don't know how close he was, but I think probably quite close to the city because after it happens, they lead him by the hand because he's been struck blind by it. Now, I and some others have explored what's going on there. And I, people, somebody emailed me just the other day about, was it an internal experience or was it real? To which my response is, people in the first century knew perfectly well the difference between somebody having a vision, which is personal to them, as it were, and a real experience. In Acts chapter 11, Peter thinks he's having a vision when he gets out of jail, and then when he's out in the street, you, oh my goodness, it's actually real. And so people did know that difference. And Paul addresses that when he says, I have seen Jesus with my own eyes. Yes. And, and that, that I think is quite clear in 1 Corinthians. So anyway, Paul, I think, is meditating, and in the tradition that he belonged to, one of the meditations that you would use would be the beginning of the book of Ezekiel, the, the, the vision of the throne chariot. And I think, like many Jews of his time, he is devoutly trying to meditate on God seated on his throne. And suddenly, it becomes real. We have difficulty with this because in the modern world, modern Western world, heaven and earth are so far apart from each other. But in the Jewish world, as many worlds today, heaven and earth are porous to one another. And the reality of the heavenly world is suddenly visible to Paul's actual sight. And he sees Jesus himself. And that's it. But then he's blinded. He is blinded, hardly surprising, and he's mentally blinded because suddenly everything he has hoped for is fulfilled and everything he has hoped for is dashed to the ground. And those two things are happening simultaneously. And it takes him three days of prayer and fasting, even to get to the point where, when somebody comes and says, Brother Saul, I've come to baptize you, and lays hands on him and so on. Um, and from that then on... And what's interesting about that, Tom, is that he calls him Brother Saul. Yes, yes, yes. From the, yes. his first encounter. Yes, 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 because he knows this is a man who's seen Jesus and is now praying, trying to figure it out. And this is the man called Ananias, who's very nervous about this because he knows perfectly well that Saul has come to arrest people like him. Um, but he goes and he takes his courage in both hands and he says, Brother Saul, and... Now, now, Pauline ecclesiology begins at that point. He had a thorn in his flesh. He prayed about it three times, and then he thought, right, that's it. Um, from your research study, any kind of indication <laughs> of, well, I'm impressed that he stopped praying after three times. Well, it's because of what the Lord said to him at that point. I did once hear a talk by a zealous, charismatic Christian who believed that God always wanted anyone with any ailments to be healed and all you had to do is to pray on and on and eventually that would happen. I actually think that's rather cruel teaching. But um, this person said, well, Paul prayed three times and when God said, my grace is sufficient for you, um, that meant Paul pray once or twice more and, and then it'll happen. That misses the whole point of 2 Corinthians 12. Just like I've been studying some stuff recently where 
people are talking about the beatific vision as this is what we're all aiming for, is to see God and look. It happened to Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 where he ascended into the third heaven, etc., and heard these unutterable words. That misses the point. Paul is caricaturing the Corinthians' uh, spiritual one-upmanship. What were your visions like? What did you hear when you were taken up into heaven? Because Paul only says he was taken to the third heaven, not the seventh. Something's a bit wrong there. And then he says, and actually I can't even tell you what I saw or heard. But then he says, that's not the point. Because actually what matters is, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. And if you imagine that these visions, whether it's of God or of angels or whatever, are the real thing, no. What matters is the cross of Jesus and, as in 2 Corinthians 3, 4, 5, 6, bearing about in my body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifest in my mortal body. So I think Paul deliberately doesn't let us know what the thorn in the flesh was. I've looked at the options and I really don't think we have any clues. It's something that was nagging at him, maybe a bad memory, maybe a temptation, maybe a, a physical ailment or some combination thereof. I think he doesn't want us to know because he does want us to know that the important thing is the cross of Jesus and somehow living with that as the challenge through which the power of Christ is made known. Now, you, you said, Tom, that um, he was, after his encounter with the Lord, he was with his family. So he was obviously uh, grappling with issues, but waiting for Kairos time. Yes, when, yes. When did he sense that it was time for him? Uh, was it when the other apostles accepted him? How did all that happen? Uh, well, um, he had been cautiously accepted soon after the Damascus Road event because um, Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and said, look, this is what's happened. Jesus has appeared to him, but they were still nervous of him. I mean, part, part of things, he knew the scriptures much better than they did. He could outthink them, outtalk them. Um, but the trouble was he would get into trouble and would get them into trouble, so they packed him off. But then he's in Tarsus, and I suspect is praying about when do I get to be more of a teacher for the church or more of an evangelist, and then Barnabas, comes from Antioch and says, we really need somebody like you to help us out because we've got this multi-ethnic, multicultural church which is starting up in Antioch, but we've got all sorts of models and we need somebody like you who knows the stuff to teach us. And from there, while that's going on, God then says, set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work I have for them. Yes. And off they go on their first missionary journey. And Paul discovers this amazing gift of being an evangelist. And three missionary journeys. At least. <laughs> At least, possibly fourth, if well, he made it to Spain. Yeah, well, wouldn't that be nice? I, I, I have come late in my old age to think maybe he did make it to Spain. Yes. But, but frustratingly, the narrative of Acts stops where it stops, and we really don't know what happened after no. that. But in the, the three missionary mm. journeys that we do know, Tom, tell us some of those highlights. Oh, my goodness. Well... For me, the, the, the highlight of the first one, there's very odd business in, in, in Crete, but uh, in, in Cyprus, sorry. Yes, um, my uh, homeland. Uh, your, your homeland, <laughs> of course, yes. Well, obviously, a very 
extraordinary place. I've only yes, been there once. Yes, absolutely. Um, but then he comes to the Tur what we would think of as the Turkish mainland. Yes. And that great speech in Pisidian Antioch. Um, but then going through the, the, the towns of South Galatia um, and uh, Derby and Lystra and so on. And the point there which is often missed is that that is one of the centers of Roman culture because Rome had settled colonies in that part of the world after the civil wars of the previous century. And particularly Pisidian Antioch was regarded as new Rome. The new buildings were to be as like Rome as possible. And in particular, it's a center of the Caesar cult. Oh my goodness, Paul comes into town saying, this world has a new Kyrios, a new Lord, and he's called Jesus. And by the way, he's a crucified Jew and God raised him from the dead. And people think, this, what has this man been smoking? You know, this, he must be out of his mind. Um, but this is, this is the, and then some people say, well, we've searched the scriptures and actually it seems to make sense. Oh my goodness, what, what's this all about? But then other people realize if you're starting this multicultural project of Jesus followers, well, what's going to happen? Because the Jewish people in that part of the world had got a let from the Roman Empire that the Jews were permitted to worship their own God and they didn't have to worship Caesar. And suddenly Paul is saying, we're just going to worship the one God who is revealed in Jesus and we're not worshiping Caesar either, even though these people have... And this puts the cat among the pigeons in all directions. And it's that complex of issues which I find utterly fascinating because it's political, it's cultural, it's social, it's theological with the lid off. And this is why Galatians was necessary when it happened. That's a whole other story. <laughs> he, he was fearless. I mean, yeah, when he yeah. describes, you know, the, all the different things he has to go through, he's shipwrecked, he's whipped, he's this, he's that. Nothing seems to hinder him. Yeah, yeah. It's as though he knows from day one. And indeed, Jesus said to Ananias, according to Act 9, I will show him how much he must suffer for my sake. In other words, it comes with the vocation. Paul, you are going to be the bearer of this glorious good news, and you will see God at work powerfully, but you will bear about in your own body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be manifest in your mortal body. This is 2 Corinthians 3, 4, 5, 6. I keep coming back to that. Yes. It's Paul's blueprint for being an apostle, and it's glorious and it's deeply painful. That's why he says in chapter one that at one point in Ephesus, he despaired of life itself which made him rely on the God who raises the dead. That's very powerful stuff. But uh, as I said uh, earlier, he, nothing would hinder yeah, him. Yeah. He, he didn't get discouraged. Well, he sort of did. I mean, that bit, we need to read First Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 1 again and again about that moment, which actually when he describes it, despairing of life, if somebody came to you pastorally and said, yes. John, I am despairing of life, you'd, think this person is having a breakdown yes. of some yes. sort. And I think Paul was in prison in Ephesus. I think he'd been beaten. I think he was alone. It was cold, dark, he's probably sick. If, you, you know, if you're hungry and thirsty, etc., they don't feed you in the ancient prisons. You have to rely on friends. It'd be very easy for your spirits to go absolutely through the sure. floor. Um, and, and so 
we mustn't think of Paul as a great hero figure who never lost heart, was always happy, etc. Even in Philippians, where he says, never worry about anything, at the end of chapter 2, just two chapters earlier, that's in chapter 4, the end of chapter 2, he's talked about Epaphroditus who got sick, and he said, God had mercy on him and on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. So we, we look at the heart yeah. of Paul he went round this cycle and I think then he said, now I must rejoice in the Lord always. But that's a conscious decision to do that. It's not that he was always riding along the no, crest of the wave. No. He would plunge to the depths and then he would somehow know how to get back. Yes, he mm. wouldn't allow it to set him back. Yeah, you know, or, but whereas mm. for us, Tom, you know, I don't know, uh, you have a flat tire. Yeah, hypothetically, <laughs> and you feel like your world has caved in, or you know you trip over a pavement. Yeah, yeah it's, all gone horribly, it's all gone horribly yeah, wrong. And yeah, somebody yeah, yeah. says, "How are you?" And you like, but, but oh. you know, there's that wonderful moment in Act 16 where Paul, having had the huge row with Barnabas, which is such yes. a shameful episode at the end of Acts 15, he then goes charging off with Silas. Right, we're going to do it now. We'll leave Barnabas and Mark behind, and tough. That's their problem. And he scoops up Timothy and. And then off they go. And then there's a period where they're wandering around in sort of northwest Turkey and they don't know where to go. Yeah. And they try to go here and the Spirit says no. And they try to go there and the Spirit says no. And I think God allowed Paul to have weeks, perhaps months, yeah. of cooling his heels as though to say, actually, we're just going to let you sweat this one for a bit. And then eventually, and I think, you know, they will have been praying about it, a dream. A man from Macedon says, come over. and Ah, now we know where we're going. Yes. And so I think Paul did go through those cycles of the flat tyres. And the, and the, yes. Um, and I, I, I think we do him and ourselves no service if we imagine that he always knew exactly what was going to happen next. And he changes his plans. And the Corinthians tell him off for changing his plans. And he says, sorry, guys, my word to you is not yes and no. It's always yes, because that's what the gospel is. But sometimes I have to make these decisions and those yes. decisions. And... It's been tough. It's been, yeah. He he then writes these letters. Yeah. So in, in his letter, yeah, he yeah. covered so many well, different topics and subjects. This is the extraordinary thing. You know, I have on my shelves the works of people like Plato and Aristotle. Now, Plato and Aristotle, in, in the classical editions, it's about this much shelf space. Yes. You know, you, wow, look at all that. Now, just 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 look at this. That is Paul's letters. That's yes. starting with Romans, ending with Philemon. Just that little bit, you can hold it between finger and thumb. And yet, it's like a, an atomic charge. It's, it is. It's small, but it's warmth. I know. More, <laughs> more, more people have done more doctorates uh, I on know. those pages. On, on those pages, yeah. Than probably yeah. anything else. Well, that's quite possible, except, well, the Gospels and so Oh, um, and the Gospels. But, but, but yes, and yes. page upon page upon page. And it's fascinating to me because when you read on into the literature from the next two generations, even great writers like Clement and Ignatius and Polycarp and so on from the early second century, they are wonderful. They are faithful Christians who are going to be martyred or whatever, and I honour them. But compared with Paul, it's really rather flat-footed. Yeah. With no, And I'm sure they would say the same, with all due respect, it's basically sorting a few things out and giving instructions and reflecting on this and that, and some wonderful, wonderful stuff. I don't want to decry them, but again, 
compared with Paul, the density of Paul's, and it's partly because he's got the whole Old Testament in his head and his heart, the Psalms and the prophets and Genesis yes. and Isaiah and Deuteronomy, and, but also because he's got this constant life of prayer where he's celebrating Jesus as Lord within this Jewish monotheistic prayer. For us, there is one God the Father and one Lord Jesus Christ, which I think, I think is the most amazing Trinitarian prayer. He is in the Spirit, praying to the one God, one Lord. This is the beginning of Trinitarian theology. It's in Paul's heart and his head. Yeah, so he, he understands the Trinity. He... Yeah, 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 yeah. He doesn't use that term. That's a third and fourth century term. But, but, but the reality is there, which is the lived reality of prayer and mission and scripture and new creation. And uh, so in a sense, People used to say, oh, well, we've got the beginnings of Trinitarian theology, and then, of course, the third and fourth centuries, they really sort it out. It's the other way around. We've got the reality here vividly, uh, you know, on steroids, as it were, and then we've got the rather flat-footed analytic version three or four centuries later, which is necessary and fine, and I confess that's true, but give me Paul any day. Absolutely. <laughs> so in his letters, Tom, um, he has written about lots of different things. What would you say is the most important thing that he wrote? Wow, wow. It's very difficult to privilege things. I happened in my reading, just because it's where I am, you can see where the marker is here. Um, this morning, I was finishing 1 Corinthians 15. and But the first half of 1 Corinthians, from verse 1 through to verse 28, gives you, particularly in verses 20 to 28, this vision of the kingdom of God. The Messiah has been raised from the dead and he is now the Lord of the world. He is going on reigning until he's put all his enemies under his feet. And when all that's happened, then God will be all in all. Wow, verses 20 to 28 there. Just say it. This is the vision of the kingdom of God, all based on the fact that God has raised Jesus from the dead. Now. I think if Paul was here, he'd say, tell him about Philippians 2 as well. Philippians 2, 6 to 11, that amazing poem about Christ being in the form of God, did not regard his equality with God as something to exploit, but emptied himself, dying the death of the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. And it's on that basis, which he summarizes in Romans 1, 3 and 4 as the gospel of Jesus descended from David, according to the flesh, designated son of God in power. That's the good news, that the world has a new Lord. He has overcome death and sin, and now he is reigning, and he's summoning you to be part of that. And that gospel unveils the righteousness of God, Romans 1, as a result of which we miserable sinners realize God has dealt with that problem yes. so that we can now ourselves be forgiven and be part of that family, and therefore be part of God's project of new creation. If anyone is in the Messiah, new creation, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Not only new creation ourselves, but the cause of new creation in God's world. Isn't that an amazing vocation? Absolutely. Oh, you hinted at it. Okay, assuming Paul, Paul visits England now, <laughs> what would he think of the church today? Oh, goodness. I've often said, if Paul could see today's church worldwide, England or anywhere else, yeah, true. he would not only be 
astonished by our disunity. He would be horrified that we don't care. He would not only be astonished by our lackadaisical attitude to holiness, but he would be horrified that mostly we don't care. Unity and holiness are for him the great thing. And as I've said many times, yes. unity is easy if you don't care about holiness. Holiness is easy if you don't care about unity. The trick is somehow to hold them together. And Paul spent his life trying to do that. And that sense of, I, if Paul came to a, an ordinary town and saw there's this church, that church, the other church, and they may kind of know each other a bit and wave at each other as they go to their different places on Sunday morning, he'd say, well, hang on, you're all one in Messiah Jesus. How is the world going to believe that new creation has been launched if you're making these things which are often just reflections of our socio-cultural differences? If you're making these things the separating issues, and, and, and then the holiness issues as well. Um, you know, the, the church has a responsibility to live as the renewed human beings, yes. which is tough. Yes, it to means, be pure, it, but to it be gatharos. Exactly, yes. exactly. Clean. Uh, exactly. But then that only happens through the cross and resurrection and spirit. And we need to go back again and again to those foundational realities and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, because we can, none of us, hold ourselves up and say, be pure just like I am. Oh, my goodness, no. You know, all Christian life starts with the message of forgiveness. As you look back, Tom, on all your study on Paul, I mean, obviously, you've been a theologian, um, an academic for, what, 50 years? Nearly, yeah. Nearly, yeah. and, of course, you've... You've studied Jesus, you've studied Paul primarily. As you look back, what would you say to us in, in concluding about Jesus and Paul? I, I would caution against anyone who imagines that in order to get to a depth of understanding, you have to have the Greek and the Hebrew and a doctorate, et cetera, et cetera, because actually I've met a lot of people who've got those qualifications and are still wandering around and seem to me getting it all wrong. And I've also met a lot of ordinary Christians, quote unquote, who have great, deep, rich insight from which I as a theologian have learned much. So I don't want at all to play the kind of intellectual elite card. That's not where I'm coming from at all. I would say that if you take Jesus seriously and really soak yourself in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, you will find that Paul's questions are coming up again and again. Mm. And if you then go to Paul and say, so Paul, how do I wrestle with this? That's the dialogue we have to have. There's a danger that if you start with Paul, you get a big intellectual construct and often the Jesus of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John can get left behind. Seems a bit, oh, well, he was just going around doing stuff, but actually, We've got to start with Jesus and understand who he was, announcing, inaugurating God's kingdom on earth as in heaven. That's the on earth bit, it's so important because heaven and earth are not far apart. And one thing I haven't mentioned all this discussion, but it's so important is the temple, the idea of the temple as the place where God comes to dwell with his people. For the New Testament writers, Jesus himself is the living temple. And then by the Spirit, we are the living temple. Ephesians 2, where God dwells by the Spirit. And that coming together of heaven and earth is so counterintuitive in our culture, where we live in this split world of 
heaven is a long way away and we're just down here on earth. We have to get used to the idea of being heaven and earth people with our focus on Jesus, invoking the Spirit, and then learning from Paul as much as we possibly can. Tom, as always, a delight to talk with you, a delight <laughs> to have you on Facing the Canon. Thank, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. Thank you. Tom has written many books, Tom Wright, N.T. Wright, um, many books. Um, I think about 70, actually. Um, I think I've read about 25. So, but I would highly uh, recommend, you want to read a biography? Paul. Dip into some of the other books that Tom has written. They will inspire you and will encourage you in your own walk with Jesus. Thank you so much for joining us on Facing the Canon. Many people have many questions about Jesus. Who was he? What did Jesus teach? Why was it necessary for Jesus to die on the cross? Did Jesus actually rise from the dead? What is it that Jesus can offer us today? How do we know that Jesus Christ is the truth? If you want to know what Jesus said, why he said it, and how we know he's the truth, pick up a copy of Jesus Christ, the truth. Get your copy now at canonjjohn.com.